This episode will have a special extended B-side cut exclusively on spinitpod.com, so be sure to swing on by and check it out. I've listened to Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John for a long time. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It! Welcome to Spin It, everybody. I'm James, and with me, as always, is Connor. Connor, say hi to the people. Let's spin it. No, it's too soon. I thought you were putting it after the... I thought you said at the beginning. Well, I thought you were going to put it after we did Factor Spin. Last week, you put it at the end of the episode. I don't know what's happening anymore. (laughs) Well, let's spin it indeed. This week is a week we've both been looking forward to for quite a while, I think. This is an anticipated episode. Nah. Oh, well, I anticipated it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i guess you didn't no i did i did oh okay last week we talked about prog rock the nice and keyboardist keith emerson yes i said we were starting or continuing a streak of keyboard players and now we're on episode 70 and now we're on episode 70 and we've got another heck of a keyboard player for you elton john you're a big elton john fan already going into this album i am and so are you i am also yes We actually went and saw Elton John live together on his farewell tour this past month. We did. And you didn't make me eat any hot chicken for it. No, I didn't make you eat any hot chicken this time. (laughs) But we'll talk about that a little more in the B-side. So if you're interested, you know where to go. www.spinitpod.com So as an Elton John fan, you know, this album has some obviously huge hits, but it's also got some deep cuts. Yeah. And you're not an album listener. No. Did you know all 17 of these songs beforehand? Can't say I did. You didn't? Really? I wasn't sure. I kind of thought you would. I don't know. Maybe I did. Uh, what? There was something I was just like, I don't remember this, but that doesn't mean I never heard it. Fair enough. I probably would venture a guess, though, that you haven't heard all of these. Probably, because I typically just put on Elton John, like, greatest hits. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing I found when I started listening to all of Elton's music. They're very spread out. <laughs> yeah, I knew all the greatest hits and all and stuff already, but when I started going album by album... Each album would have like one or two songs that was a really significant hit. And then the rest of them would be stuff I'd never heard of. (laughs) And it's, you know, it varies from album to album, but a lot of it's good stuff. It's just kind of interesting how how often he can find a diamond in the rough and like have every album for so long have a, a hit song, but only really one. You know what I mean? It's weird. But at long last, it is time to talk about him. You ready to learn about Elton John? Sorry, what? I guess you're not. I said, said, are you ready to learn about Elton John? Yeah! That's the spirit. I also, I don't think you'll particularly, you specifically, will learn much about Elton John, because I'm guessing you already know a lot of it. Oh. Hey, James. Yeah? What's his real name? Great question. It's not Sir Elton Hercules John. That's his stage name. What? Yeah. He was born Reginald Kenneth Dwight in 1947, and he started learning to play the piano at the age of seven. His father was a musician. He was a trumpet player, as a matter of fact, but he always wanted Elton to do something a little more stable. Specifically, he wanted him to go into banking, which doesn't exactly seem like Elton John's wheelhouse. (laughs) 
you know, the, the wonderful world of finance. Elton knew pretty early on that music was what he really wanted to do. When he was 15, he was already playing covers and original songs in local pubs around his hometown in England. And he actually started wearing his now iconic horn-rimmed glasses, not because he needed them to see, but because he was trying to look like Buddy Holly. But his eyesight eventually worsened, so you could say he grew into them. I guess, yeah. He does actually use glasses now. You know. Hey, James. What? Why are you doing this? <laughs> Tell me about his first band. That's great. That's exactly <laughs> what I was about to say before you interrupted me to ask about it. <laughs> Guess that's the thing. So he's playing in pubs. He gets together with some of his friends and they form this band called Bluesology. And, you know, the band has some moderate success, but the real turning point in his career was not with Bluesology. It was when he answered an ad in a magazine that was looking for songwriters. He showed up to answer this ad and they handed him an envelope with a set of lyrics by another hopeful songwriter, Bernie Taupin. He said, okay, well, I like these words. I can write the music to these. And he sent the music over to Bernie himself and he was like, oh my gosh, I love it. And voila, you know, songwriting history was made. They they kind of became a songwriting pair, right? And that's the way it would work for a long time. John would write the music to Toppin's lyrics, and that's kind of the hit machine. So John leaves Bluesology, and then he takes on the name Elton John as a tribute. It's only after he leaves Bluesology that he becomes Sir Elton Hercules John. Well, he doesn't become Sir then, he just becomes Elton John. Well, that's true. He doesn't get the Sir till later. That's down the road. Yes, you're right. It's a combination of the names of his former bandmates, Elton Dean and Long John Baldry. He legally changed his name and added Hercules as a middle name in 1972. So that's a ways away. But he and Bernie start writing together full-time in 1968. They put out Elton's first solo album called Empty Sky in 69. His second self-titled album was soon to follow, and that is what brought hits like Border Song and Your Song into the world. Love Your Song. Yeah, that was his gift, really, and that one's for us. By 1972, he would put out five albums featuring a lot more of his enduring hits, including... It's quite a list. Uh, Tiny Dancer, Burn Down the Mission, Leave On, Honky Cat, Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatters, and of course, the song that gave him one of his most well-known nicknames, Rocket Man. Rocket Man! Yeah. All that happens in his first five albums, which is incredible. His fifth album, Honky Chateau, was his first number one in the United States. And Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player came out next. And it featured more hits like Daniel and Crocodile Rock. Hey, James. Yes. I own a crocodile, Oh, Ed. Or is it alligator? I really don't know. You're going back to what we talked about last week in Factor Spin, a taxidermied alligator head. Yeah, technically, technically, I guess it's the Knicks tapers, but right, you know, we share custody. You share. You live in the same apartment, so that only makes sense. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I I wasn't sure whether you really had one or not. I don't really know if he has a name. What should we name him? What What do you mean? Does he need a name? Feel like any animal brought up on this podcast needs a name. I guess that's true. Most of them do have names. Since this is like a since Crocodile Rock. Okay, what if we called him the Rockadile? The Rockadile. I like it. Yeah, it's like an Elton John tribute and prog rock because we did oh, the like nice it. last week. Yeah. Okay, he can be kind of the friend of the gopher, I guess. I need to buy him a pair of Elton John sunglasses and put on him. <laughs> I kind of like that. The Rockadile. Right. Anyway, so he's released six albums to this point, and that's where Goodbye... Hey, James! I'm, yeah? <laughs> when does uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road come in? 
<laughs> if you just just give me three extra seconds of patience. <laughs> yeah, exactly where I was about to say. Um, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is his seventh mm. studio album in 1973. So all these hit singles have come out. These first six albums have been a huge wave of success for Bernie and Elton. And Goodbye Yellow Brick Road enters the scene. It's a 17-track double LP, more than 75 minutes long, and it is jam-packed with everything Elton and Bernie do best. A lot of people kind of consider this his pinnacle, a little bit of a magnum opus, which is kind of funny because it came out just seven albums into an ongoing 31-plus album career. I mean, Elton John makes a lot of music, but a lot of people would consider Goodbye Yellow Brick Road the peak. Rolling Stone has ranked it as high as number 91 on the greatest albums of all time list. In 2003, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road made it into the Grammy Hall of Fame. It topped the charts in Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US, and it ended 1974 at number one on the Billboard 200 and number two in Australia. And actually, it, it most recently charted at number 71 in Australia in 2019. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I could tell you. But Australia still loves Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. It actually, in the United States, stayed on the charts for more than 12 weeks. And the singles that were coming off this record were keeping it so popular it was interfering with their next album release. They had to cut a few songs <laughs> from being released as singles so that they could give enough space for the next album, which is wild to me. I mean, imagine that level of success is pretty hard to wrap your head around. Today, the album is certified a pretty incredible eight times platinum in the United States. That's more than eight million album sales. It's three times platinum in Australia, double platinum in the United Kingdom. Suffice it to say, it's a massively popular album. Yeah, indeed. Mm -hmm. It's named, if you hadn't put it together, it's named after the infamous Yellow Brick Road from The Wizard of Oz, but it did have a couple of other working titles. Uh, Vodka and Tonics was kicked around as a title, and they also considered calling it Silent Movies Talking Pictures. And I'm really glad that we kind of ditched those and landed on Yellow Brick Road. Those are kind of bad album titles. You say that now, but if they had gone with Vodka and Tonics, you might have been saying the same thing about Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Well, the good news is that's all hypothetical, and we never have to put that to the test. But we will. Spin it Mythbusters. Yeah, on our, on our spinoff podcast, To the Test. Wow, that'd be too much work. Where we put it. Was that, did you finish your sentence? Or are we going to say to the test? No, no, it's called to the test. And that's where we put it. Oh. Because we put it to the test. I don't think, I don't think that's a good tagline. <laughs> of course, if this podcast was called to the test, where we put it, and the other podcast was called spin it, well, then I might feel different. <laughs> exactly. Whatever. <laughs> So this album, like I said, 17 tracks long. When they were preparing for it, they actually wrote 22 songs for this album, which is a lot of material. Obviously, some of it did not make the cut. And the album wasn't even planned to be a double record. Release the Vodka Tonic cut. The Vodka Tonics cut even longer. I'm sure all those songs have come to light now, just through the popularity of this album. Probably. So they had a lot of songs lined up, and they wrote a lot of songs quickly. Bernie Taupin wrote all the lyrics over the course of about two and a half weeks, and he sent them to Elton, who wrote a majority of the music in three days while he was staying in Jamaica. Like, imagine going from absolutely nothing to an eight times platinum album's worth of songs in three weeks. I could do it. Well, okay, you've got 21 days. Clock starts now. Done. Right. Let's hear it. Can't. Why not? Because I'm a liar. <laughs> the mixtape is rubbing off on you. <laughs> yeah, it was me the whole time. Oh, shoot. 
<laughs> I'm just kidding, kidding. That was my impersonation of the mixtape. That was a pretty good one. Pretty good at it. Yeah, you've been. Thank you. You've been practicing. The album was actually slated to be recorded in Jamaica, but there were some snags in the production process, and so they had to relocate to a studio in Paris, where Elton John had recorded his previous two albums, which also took only two weeks. So that's mostly where we're focusing today. All that good by Yellow Brick Road, that era. But Elton's story goes on, I mean, a lot beyond this record. The, the highlights, okay? You're going to get the bullet point version of the rest of his career. He started his own record label in 1974 called the Rocket Record Company. And he's collaborated with all kinds of notable artists from all walks of life, including Kiki D, John Lennon, George Michael of Wham, who you may remember from our Wham episode, uh, Fallout Boy. He did a series of co-concerts with the piano man Billy Joel. And you've even already heard his music on this podcast if you've been listening to it. You might remember his piano playing featured on Lil Nas X's Montero, and he had vocal contributions on Kanye West's All of the Lights. And he very recently topped the charts with Cold Heart, a remixed and mashed up version of his hit songs Sacrifice, Rocket Man, and Kiss the Bride in tandem with the Queen Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa! The Queen! Yeah. I think we even name dropped him way back in the day as a financier of Monty Python and the Holy Grail on our Pink Floyd episode. Correct. We totally did, or at least the mixtaper did. I mean, he, yes, right. So Elton John's been around Spin It for quite a while, and it's about time we, we bring him into the fold here. He's also branched into movies. He wrote the soundtrack for The Lion King, as I'm sure most of you probably already know. His music was also used... Hey, Connor. Don't you dare. What else was his music used to? <laughs> Moulin Rouge, Moulin Rouge, however you pronounce that. That's right, it sure was. The songs Come What May, uh, the Elephant Love Medley uses some of your, uh, your song is even in Moulin Rouge. Yeah, it's a fun little trivia tidbit. Now, he's a pretty awarded, a pretty gilded artist, in fact. We've got, I mean, a long list of awards. I'm really only giving you a handful of highlights, but there's still a lot of highlights. In 1975... Hey, James. <laughs> He's just kidding. <laughs> he earned the 1,662nd star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Today, by the way, there are over 2,700. And he was named Outstanding Rock Personality of the Year at the first ever Rock Music Awards. He's had six albums on the Rolling Stones' 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. Six. That's a lot. <laughs> Elton and Bernie were inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame side by side in 1992. In 1994, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Axl Rose of Guns N' Roses, which is a fact that Kurt Cobain would despise. <laughs> That's another time we brought him up. I forgot to even mention it. Yeah. He did have his piano spat all over by Kurt Cobain on accident from the Nirvana episode. Yes. In 1995, he became a commander of the Order of the British Empire. And in 2006, he was named a Disney legend, our second Disney legend on the show, by the way, for his contribution to Disney works, not least of all The Lion King. Who was the first? Are you asking me who was the first? Was it Phil Collins? Absolutely. Okay, just checking. Yeah, for Tarzan and whatnot. <laughs> what? That wasn't funny. It's true. Just the whatnot part. <laughs> oh, the whatnot is really just Brother Bear. I don't think he's done much else for Disney. Yeah, I know. That's why I laugh. Either way, Elton John, welcome to the ranks of Spin at Disney Legends. He's been nominated for 34 Grammys and won six of them, although his first Grammy win didn't come till 1987. He has Academy Awards for Best Original Song. He's got a Golden Globe, and he has a Tony. So he's an Emmy away from an EGOT, which makes him also an Emmy away from a Seagot, I think. Technically, <laughs> the Spin It 
Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Well, he hasn't gotten a spinning award. Well, no, but he would get one. Does getting an EGOT automatically make you a CGOT winner? No. Oh, I thought that's why we gave it to Andrew Lloyd Webber. I think he got the spinning award for having an EGOT, but not everyone who gets an EGOT will get a spinning award for having an EGOT. Oh. You know, you just got to get a spinning award. His just coincidentally happened to be for getting an EGOT. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It seems a little unfair. You got a point, I guess. I mean, he'll probably get a spinning award at some point during this episode. So he's yeah. Right now he's an E away. <laughs> I don't know if he'll get an Emmy. He hasn't really done much with television. But now that he's retiring from touring, he'll have all this free time. Yeah, to fill up with TV, television. We'll see. <laughs> Elton's net worth is estimated to surpass 320 million pounds, making him one of the 10 wealthiest British musicians. Sorry, what, what is that in American dollars? In US dollars, that's about 364 million. Oh, okay. That's a lot of money. Hey, that was your perfect opportunity to play uh, Guess That Dollar Amount. I should have played Guess That Pound Amount. It had the same ring to it. And actually, we were guessing dollar amounts. We knew what it was in pounds. I, but I could have made you guess the pound amount. Oh, uh, yeah, you could have. I could have. I blew it. Elton has six residences in four different countries. And people actually speculate that he has one of the largest private collections of photography in the world. He's a big fan of pictures. What a coincidence. I'm a big fan of pictures. Pictures? Yeah. Like, you're talking about people who throw balls? Or are you talking about things that no. serve drinks? Things that serve drinks. Who likes baseball? Tug McGraw. Fair enough. Who likes that was a good who likes cut. pitchers? <laughs> so we got all three covered. We're good. What? No. <laughs> we got pi- pitchers, Pit- pitchers, and pictures all covered. Between Elton, Tug McGraw, and me. And you? That's what you all have in common? <laughs> that's the bonds that tie us. Tie- the, wait, the, no. The, <laughs> settle down. <laughs> it's the ties that bond us. Right. Okay. He founded the Elton John's AIDS Foundation in 1992, and he's worked to raise money and awareness about HIV as a really passionate advocate in the decades since. And he actually hosts an annual white tie and tiara ball at his home. Which of the four? There's like a big uh, estate that he owns in England that's like historic. Like it's got significance historically. I forget exactly what it is, but that's where he hosts it. And uh, we should talk a little bit about the Farewell Yellow Brick Road Tour, his farewell tour that began in 2018, and it's still happening today. It's scheduled to wrap up in the summer of 2023. It's a massive tour. He's trying to hit all kinds of cities, all kinds of countries all around the world, and we saw it. We were there. We did. We were there. And this is the point in the show where if you're listening to the regular cut, we'll move straight into Factor Spin. See ya. And if you're listening to the B-side cut, we'll keep going. Let's talk to our good old dastard friend, the mixtaper. See what he's been up to. Hey, it's me, the mixtaper. Hello and welcome back. Uh, did you think of facts ahead of time this week, or should I be prepared to, to call them all spins as you make it up as we go? You'll have to find out. I guess I will. I'm, I'm bringing my A-game. My first fact for you, he's another artist with an interesting contract. Are you talking about like a writer in his, you know, yes. the things that he demands of venues when he goes to play? Correct. Previous interesting writers that we've had included the lie about Billy Joel requiring green Skittles. <laughs> Still one of my best. That was a good one. And and there was another one, too, that I can't remember off the top of my head. I think there's been two or three at this point. There was uh, Chicken. Well, that's true. 
Pentatonics requiring rotisserie chickens. Well, just last week, Lee Jackson drinking root beer, but that's not really a rider. Yeah, that one, that one wasn't. That one wasn't a rider, but I think the chicken one was. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's dig in. What is on Elton John's rider? What does he want before every show? A laundry list of ta- of things. He has quite a list. Actually, here's a fun fact. And another time that Elton John has come up on this podcast that I didn't think about till right now. Everywhere he goes, or at least back in the day, everywhere he would go and tour he would take a copy of stevie wonder's songs in the key of life with him i think we mentioned that mm. on the stevie wonder episode but worth re-mentioning here as we're talking about his writer anyway go on a slew of things on the list you say yes a six foot sofa specific a love seat nice an easy chair table lamps floor standing lamps a coffee table, six food banquet tables, what? covered with white linen tablecloths, large green plants, large arrangement of colored flowers, but no chrysanthemums, lilies, carnations, or daisies. I don't know what's left, frankly, but I'm no botanist. <laughs> uh, what? Roses are still in there, right? I think so. Yeah. A bunch of colorful roses. Sure. Wow. Well, I mean... I'm, oh, I'm not done, but I guess let's pause. Do you have any anything about that? Why lamps? I would guess he's going to be in a lit dressing room. I, does he just like... I don't know. Is there something about like blue light? The atmosphere. I don't know. I don't know. This is... A lot. Not, I guess, unreasonable for Elton. Like, Elton John's a a significant get, you know? If I'm a venue that's going to host Elton John, I mean, he can do what he wants. We'll get him a flipping monster truck or I don't know. We'll make something work. (laughs) A monster truck. What a coincidence. No. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. And that's when I knew it was a spin. (laughs) What else? What else is on the list? Is this a Michael Jackson zoo fact that's going to go on for 45 minutes (laughs) as we just list everything in every one of Elton John's dressing rooms? Also on the list, a bowl of blueberries, a bedazzle gun, <laughs> okay, well, a plate of fresh chocolate chip cookies, hold on, a dartboard, a karaoke machine, and a bag of carrots. Okay, so uh, the food items, I mean, whatever. Snack on whatever you want. A karaoke machine, that's fun. Well, I mean, I don't know why you'd, you're going to go out and sing. I, I don't I think you'd save your voice, but that's okay. Let's talk about this bedazzle gun. Yes. Wh- what? What's he bedazzling backstage? I don't know. Is that for like personal use or is that for like his costume people who are like taking care of his his clothes? Oh, that would actually probably make more sense that it's probably for his costume people in case. If something goes wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I too was under the the mindset of personal use. It was like, I have no idea what he would be using it for. To bedazzle things. I don't know. The the, the Maybe it's for the linen on the tables. The tablecloth. requested. He bedazzles the tablecloths himself. Okay, is that it? Is that the end of the list? It's the end of the list. Okay, and so every venue gets him all those things. Has any venue not done that? And has he said anything about it? I don't know. I, mean, I don't even know if like every venue needs all of these things or... It's just like, this I just, is like the standard setup. This is, I think, the standard setup and there might be, you know, options for large green plants aren't in season, but we got you more colored ones to replace them. <laughs> or maybe, well, we only had five food banquet tables, but we crammed all the food on it, so it's the same amount of food. I don't know. I don't know how persnickety he is. I, I would guess probably all these big time entertainment venues that would host him can probably handle that number of banquet tables. <laughs> I think this is a fact. He's a huge artist. He's an important artist. You didn't even ask me what the bag of carrots was for. Is it not for, sorry, is it not for eating? <laughs> 
It's not for, well, it's for eating, but not for him. Who's eating them? His pet rabbit. Oh, that's, it's weird that he doesn't have anything else on the rider for his rabbit. Like a little bunny place. Oh, uh, we have another fact coming about the rabbit. Don't worry. Oh, okay. I just wanted to bring him up now. Interesting. <laughs> What's the, oh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Carrots for the rabbit then. I guess we'll leave it at that. Also, what a specific thing for me not to ask you about. Why would I have asked you about the carrots specifically? I know. I just, I had that information. <laughs> you know, if I'd asked about anything else, you'd go, I don't know. I even did ask about other things. And you know what you said? I don't know. Beats me. Of course I'm not going to ask about the bag of carrots. <laughs> this game sometimes. I'm going to say this is a fact. I think this is true. This is a spin. Oh, I, in a way that doesn't surprise me. I guess this is an easy one to make up. Yes. Uh, some of those items were true, but I made the list quite long, and most of them are fake. You sure did. What did you add yourself? What's real? Uh, pretty much everything that was in the second half of that list. Even the carrots? Yeah, I mean, he does have, you know, the pet bunny again, back coming in the future. Yeah. But uh, the bedazzle gun was made up, the plate of fresh chocolate chip cookies, the dartboard. The bedazzle gun was one of the coolest parts. I know. <laughs> so no karaoke machine. Okay. But just like love seats and lamps and, and flowers. Yeah. Fair enough. Was that my like 16th spin in a row? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Let's go into our next fact. He was part of John Lennon's last ever performance. Ooh. Okay, so John Lennon dies in the 80s, gets shot. Tell me more about John Lennon's last ever performance. I know he stopped touring, I mean, a lot. The Beatles didn't tour much after their, like, mid-career, and I don't think Lennon did a ton yeah. after that himself either. He and Yoko were kind of introverts or bed-in people a lot. Sure. So what's Lennon's last performance look like? All right, so the year was 1974. The venue, Madison Square Garden. Ah, a classic. Is John Lennon there as a headliner? Is he part of a, you know, I don't know, a festival or something? Like, what's the what's the occasion? Elton John is performing a concert. Okay, so it's Elton's concert. John Lennon's crashing the party, so to speak. John Lennon comes on stage. Okay, yeah. Um, what do they sing? Lennon sang a few songs. Imagine. Imagine the opportunity to see both of them live. I know. Did he sing Imagine? The time machine's for. I don't know. <laughs> you don't know what he sang? Uh, no. Well, okay. Um, interesting. Just that he sang a few songs and it would go on to be his last ever performance. A good couple years before he died. Wow. So how was Elton John a part of it instead of, I mean, it sounds like Elton John was... Oh, he played along with him. Oh, okay. That's really cool. My guess is they performed at least whatever gets you through the night because that was the first time the two artists worked together was elton played piano on john lennon's track whatever gets you through the night yeah which went on to become lennon's first hit single in the u.s yeah i'm i'm pretty sure that was in the lineup as for anything else i do not know yeah okay i'm gonna go ahead and say i think this one's a fact i i really do think this one's breaking your 16 spin streak are you sure yes Sure, I didn't just uh, change one detail about it to make it a spin. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm pretty certain. Last chance to change your mind. I'm pretty certain that everything you asserted as a fact was true. All right, this is. You really should have changed it. I can't believe you think I'd break a 16 streak. Um, that's a shame. 
A fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can't give me. I know better. This was one I was afraid you'd know. This is one I do think I've heard of. I, I obviously, I, I am a big Beatles fan, a uh, band of which John Lennon was a part. However, I know a lot less about them once they break up uh, and kind of continue on solo careers. And that's Big not fan. to say I know nothing, because obviously I, I think I had caught wind of this. This felt familiar. Uh, my biggest hang-up was going to be, was it his last performance? I don't know. But it seemed likely, especially, like I said, as a guy who doesn't tour or perform much in John Lennon. Mm. But okay, yeah, we did. You haven't told a fact since Tina Turner. In a while. Mick Jagger learning to dance was the last fact you told way back at the beginning of Mixtober. Well, I guess it's gonna be a long, long time since I told a fact on this podcast. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm the mixtaper. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> uh, wh- what's next? What do you have? Up next, Elton John will make you an offer you simply can't refuse. What a weird fact. Uh, are you, You're doing The Godfather. Is Elton John, is this fact related to The Godfather? Uh, loosely. Okay. <laughs> Elton John will make me an offer I can't refuse? It's, again, I was just quoting The Godfather. Or will he make anybody an offer they can't refuse? Uh, he'll make a couple specific people an offer they can't refuse. Interesting. Okay, what's that offer? And who are those specific people? To be the godfather to their children. Okay, so he's... <laughs> <laughs> picking out godfathers, godparents for his actual kids. Okay. No, 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 no. Oh. He's he... godfather to their kids. Okay. That's why he's making the offer, because the godfather makes the offer. He's offering to be people's godfather? Uh, he just is people's godfather. I don't really know if he was offered or asked, but I was just making a godfather <laughs> reference because he's a godfather. Okay. Well, that is... <laughs> we really took a roundabout way into this one, <laughs> because of the way you phrased it and then presenting that... You know, oh, it's a it's a Godfather bit. It makes me think that he's just kind of got an open invitation where if you like write him a letter, <laughs> say, hey, will you technically be the Godfather of my child? And he just is like, sure. You know, that kind of Venmo me fifty bucks and I'm yours. Well, that'd be wild. What if? What if you could just pay Elton John to be the Godfather of your children? We need to make a service like Cameo, but for Godfathers. <laughs> just for Godfathering. <laughs> Celebrities can get it on there and set prices for how much it would cost them. We could call it Daddy-O. Daddy-O? Oh, I hate that. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Rockadile disapproves. Oh, so who's, whose godfather is he? He is... Uh... The godfather of Sean Lennon, the son of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Oh, I do know that's a fact. Go on. Yes. He's the godfather of Brooklyn and Romeo Beckham, the children of David and Mm. Victoria Beckham. I think I know that's a fact. Go on. And the godfather of Elizabeth Hurley's kids, whose names I don't know. Okay. That is one I'm less sure about, but oh, I've played my hand too early. I see what I've done. (laughs) Now you can just say things and, and... (laughs) The things you say can totally be fake, but you know that I'll buy it on the first two. You never learn. I guess I don't. Is this like uh, in ceremony only? You know, some people are like godparents, but they don't do anything. Some people are godparents in the sense that if something happens to the actual parents, they will take over the godparents as like raising the child. Is Elton John committed to raising all of these celebrity kids? I mean, Sean Lennon's already old and, you know, he's covered. I would assume so. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm going to... Stick with fact on this one. <laughs> Going with fact? I think Elton John has made people offers they can't refuse, I guess, if you want to put it that way. 
This is another true fact. Heck yeah. That's an interesting one. I wonder what got him started to do that. I assume John Lennon was like, will you be a godfather to my kid? Well, and he was like, yeah, I guess. I guess. Sure. (laughs) For 50 bucks. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, what if what if we started that right now? Like mixtaper? Huh? Would you be the first one on Daddy-O? Like if people reach out to the podcast and say, mixtaper, can you godfather my children? You do that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They got to supply their own mask. But yes. Oh, you're going to make the kid wear a mask. Well, yeah, it's how I was raised. Okay. It's not Is that not how everybody's for, raised? For legal reasons, this is entirely a joke. <laughs> but for the record, if that's of interest to you, let us know. If, if it's of interest to you to have a supervillain raise your child in the event of something happening to you, <laughs> let us know. Right. Okay, so that's three-fourths of the classic four. Yes. Traditionally, a final ramp would be on the horizon. Final ramp is on the horizon. Okay, what do we got? I'm, I'm a little scared. He loves a good celebrity feud i'll bet he does so what celebrities are feuding in elton john's life tell me it's the beckhams and the lennons <laughs> no who else is in a feud i don't i don't keep up too much with celebrity feuds yeah it's with him and rod stewart <laughs> oh he's a part of the feud he loves sorry he loves being in celebrity feuds <laughs> yeah, yeah does he start them like is he picking fights yeah, he's had a few over the year. Like, I know him and Madonna had a feud. Like, he's had several interesting celebrity feuds over the years. But the one we're going to focus in on is, is his one with Rod Stewart. Okay, what did they get into a fight about? Uh, They've had an on and off friendship. Um, but they're really known for kind of pranking one another in big ways. Like, okay, are these malicious pranks? A feud would imply that I don't like them and I want to prank them to their detriment and not just like a ha ha ha. It says on and off friendships, so I think sometimes and sometimes not. You never know if you're going to get pranked harmlessly <laughs> or if it's really going to mess you up. What kind of pranks have they been playing? Hiring snipers. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a prank. That's a crime. Who's sniping who? Well, Rod Stewart once released a bunch of balloons into the sky to promote a concert. Uh Uh-huh. And so Ellen John hired a bunch of snipers to go up on the roof and shoot the balloons down. A bunch? How many? Uh, It doesn't say. I'm going to say a bunch is typically at least like three, though. That's true. That's how much did he pay these people? How many balloons were there? Who's to say? Did it work? I mean, does that... I mean, yeah, they shot the balloons down. <laughs> That's so bizarre. Why Why snipers? Why wouldn't you use, like, shotguns? I don't know. It seems more effective to take down balloons. Well, because they were already all up in the air, probably. I don't know. I don't know. When was this? Is this, like... T- Who's to say? Uh, but also one other time, Rod put up a huge banner on the side of a building that said blondes have more fun tour. Okay. Like, to promote his tour. And so Elton, on the building across the street... Hired a bunch of snipers <laughs> to shoot the sign. But Elton put up a big banner on the other building across the street that said, but brunettes make more money. Oh, well, <laughs> now that I can believe. That's a little easier than the sniper one. Um, <laughs> you asked for a final ramp. Careful what you wish for. How much did he pay for snipers for this little prank? Oh, apparently they were blimp-sized balloons, by the way. Oh, okay. That's different. I thought you meant like <laughs> little like latex balloons, like little helium-filled. Oh, like at a party, you know. <laughs> it's just, 
bang, like, bang, like the uphouse. Yeah, and then you got to snipe each one of them. That's different. So if it's a blimp-sized balloon, is there like anyone piloting these? I mean, God forbid. I assume not. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not too. It says blimp-sized balloons, not actual well, blimp. But it's not a blimp. I feel like a blimp is kind of itself a blimp-sized balloon in a certain sense. I think this is a spin. Going with spin. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can believe maybe that he's in some celebrity feuds, and I can believe even that he did the little sign prank and he's trolling, but to hire snipers to shoot <laughs> blimps out of the sky, I mean, that's you're asking a lot. You're asking for me to believe a lot. Yeah, that was a, it was a little far-fetched, I know, uh, stop, but I really thought it's a final stop spin. Stop setting it up that way. That means it's not, it's not a spin. It was a little bit of a stretch, so good thing I didn't have to do any stretching because this is a fad. Wow. <laughs> that's unreal i can't believe that well is that a satisfying uh final ramp for you <laughs> i really took a turn i i was i was skeptical at first because celebrities have little petty feuds all the time you know wow that's really something so we're right back at it 50 50 this week yeah so you'll have to tune into the b-side if you're not already to see if we can break this tie oh okay i actually you had me convinced i thought that was the last one period full stop i I didn't realize there were extra B-side facts. Oh, yeah. I See, I unlike you, I don't tip my hand. <laughs> if I was winning, I could have just stopped. <laughs> yeah, you make a good point. Well, that's going to do it for Factor Spin. Thanks for another week of fun facts and less fun spins. And great jokes. Well, <laughs> yeah, we'll see you next week. We've got more episodes to go. All right. Yeah. All right, welcome back, Connor. Let's spin it. <laughs> no, not yet. You're really trying. You're going to get the right spot one of these times. First, before we can spin it, we have to talk about the album cover. Oh. The album art on Yellow Brick Road is some of the coolest that we've talked about in a while, I think. It was created by Ian Beck, who's an illustrator. And the cover art depicts Elton John stepping into a poster on the wall of a Yellow Brick Road. It's a, a pretty great depiction of leaving the city life for all these, like, simple, bucolic pleasures, you know? Just headed off into the sunset like he is. Plus the red ruby shoes. I mean, look at those things. I know, right? It's pretty cool. And also the other thing I want to draw people's attention to, because I've always looked at this album cover and shockingly i've never noticed it until i was making graphics for this very episode down at the bottom that tiny little piano isn't that cool yeah and the tiny little music note yeah it's so nice it reminded me of tiny dancer which is not on this album but still a very iconic elton john song i like it a lot it's a it's an album cover that it provokes you it makes you think this this image sparks joy yes it does. But without further ado, I mean, we have 17 whole tracks to get into, so we should probably dive on in. Indeed. We should make like Elton John and step into the yellow brick road. Indeed. So you keep saying indeed. This is the part where you were going to... Oh, 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 uh, let's spin it. Okay, there it is. The first track on this album is actually two tracks blended together. They weren't initially supposed to be that way, but up first is Funeral for a Friend slash Love Lies Bleeding. What happened with these two is, you know, Love Lies Bleeding was already a, a song on its own. And then Elton John was reflecting on what kind of music he would want to be playing at his own funeral someday, you know? 
And he wrote down, came up with Funeral for a Friend, this instrumental. And the songs fit together so well sonically and thematically, frankly, for that matter. Love Lies Bleeding and Funerals. And so they decided to smush them. The instrumental is a really interesting part. It's kind of long. I know. I love it. I love it, too. I was surprised that he played the whole thing in concert. But it's an 11-minute combination of songs. I really love the second half, personally. The Love Lies Bleeding part really gets me going. It's so high energy and really cool. Like, I love this metaphor of dying roses. It kind of reminds me of the little She Loves Me, She Loves Me Not game, you know? And Yeah, yeah. And honestly, the whole song is kind of a little violent. <laughs> All these hoops of fire that she can't jump through. Like, love isn't dying. It's just bleeding out. Like, whoa. It's a little intense, but a great start to the album, especially with the energy and the just the talent that he's got as a composer and a pianist is really impressive. I just really love it. It's a great start to the album. Up next is one of Elton's more popular tracks of all time, actually. Uh, it's Candle in the Wind. And this song, as you probably already know, is about Norma Jean Mortensen, who most of you would recognize by her stage name, Marilyn Monroe. She passed away in 1962, and so Candle in the Wind kind of serves as a tribute to her life and her legacy, while it simultaneously kind of laments the struggles that she went through as this kind of tragic heroine stuck in the spotlight and all like the, I don't know, the muck and mire of Hollywood and being in the public eye at that time. Yeah. And if you're thinking to yourself, wait a moment, this song's not about Marilyn Monroe, then you might be thinking of the re-recorded 1997 version, which was a tribute to Princess Diana. That's right. Yeah, they reworked the lyrics to fit her specific story. And uh, that song actually only got performed live once at her tribute like her funeral her memorial yeah since then i mean the recordings exist and stuff it's a massively popular reworking of a song probably the most popular or most famous at least rewrite that we've seen yet although if you were confused and thought it was about princess diana you should probably just listen to the lyrics of the song because the first three words are goodbye norma jean what yeah i know i know (laughs) Bernie Taupin said that Marilyn Monroe was a metaphor for fame and dying young and people overdoing indulgence. He said that the song could have easily been about Montgomery Clift or James Dean or Jim Morrison, but it just seemed that she had a more sympathetic bent to her. And that's kind of how we landed on Marilyn Monroe. As for Elton, uh, he himself was a big fan of Marilyn, kind of watched her grow up as just a kid. And I would imagine he took a lot of his inspiration from her just for how he conducts himself in public and kind of his just the way that he does things. I really love this metaphor in general, just of living life like a candle in the wind. Because, you know, a candle in the wind is it's all over the place. It burns out. It's up and down and all around. Sometimes it gets blown out. It's very uh, fleeting, you know? I like that image. Yeah, I agree. Me too. And I think it's cool to talk about how the candle burned out long before the legend ever did. Just yeah. kind of, so to speak, like your your impact can extend beyond the bounds of your life. Even when life maybe blows you out, the legacy continues. Really clever concept. You think when, uh, hopefully in the long, long distant future, Elton departs this world, they'll rewrite it for his story and there'll be a bunch of people doing tribute to this song to his story. Absolutely. Which is a really cool thing to think about. And then say goodbye Norma Jean at the beginning. It could be goodbye Reginald. I guess, yeah. <laughs> goodbye Reginald. Goodbye Elton John. Goodbye Hercules. Oh, I like Hercules. You got options. 
especially because of the impact again the power of the your candle burned out long before your legend ever did that's true what i'd say though is i don't know if elton john has exactly lived his life like a candle in the wind never knowing who to cling to when the rain set in i feel like he's been kind of a a figure in the public eye that's been adamant about what he stands for and how he does things that's true and he's kind of really staked his own claim to that well they might have to change uh, a couple extra words call it a candle in the go on in the <laughs> just a candle just a candle that's the song you lived your life like a candle and that's just where it stops <laughs> that's the song congratulations you did it yes catch that on connor's hippin and hoppin album <laughs> like a candle in a home <laughs> sure also, I got to just side note, I love that bit in the show, you know, Parks and Recreation, where they're trying to write a song 5,000 times better than Candle in the Wind, and they write the song <laughs> 5,000 Candles in the Wind. <laughs> it's just funny. That's just classic. Up next, the song that we missed in concert, Benny and the Jets. The way it started, though, was also kind of epic, not being able to see it. Like, it would have been great to be able to see it, but... All of a sudden, you know, we're finishing up at the merch table, and then all of a sudden, you just hear the crowd roar, erupt, yeah. just a roar. And then, as the crowd roar kind of start, like it's been ro- it's roaring, it's roaring, it's roaring, and then all of a sudden, you just hear blunk, 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 but uh, dung. It's like yeah, it's like you can't even see it, but it just the music starts, and it's just this big epic moment over top of the roaring crowd. No kidding, I know. It was still pretty cool. It's that very first major seventh chord that goes boom. I would have liked to have seen what was on the screens, but it is just him sitting at the piano. We got plenty of that. That's a good point. Benny and the Gents is a song about a fake band. And actually, it's kind of ironic that we didn't get to see it because (laughs) it's a satire about how the 1970s music industry put more focus on form over function. They go for showmanship and looks instead of actually investing in talent and making quality music. So the whole song kind of focuses around Benny and the Jets, this fake band that is really stylish and popular and cool, and the fans that love the band, not sight unseen, but song unheard. (laughs) When they recorded this song, they actually pumped in fake crowd noise to try and make it sound live. And actually, they just generally set up the production to be that way, too. I mean, the piano sounds like it's in an open space. It's not like closed in a studio. It feels, feels like there's a little more elbow room around it. I agree. One of the interesting tidbits about this song I didn't realize are, uh, like, in that very first verse, he sings a line about how the spotlights are hitting something that's been known to change the weather. This song came out right around the time that people first started turning spotlights upside down and pointing them up, which is a common thing nowadays. I mean, like, very common. But apparently that was a new idea back in the mid-70s, and so people went wild over it. They were like, what if, instead of this pointing down... We pointed it up. And it hits the clouds, something that's been known to change the weather. You know what else is interesting is the iconic Benny in the Jets, that little stutter step there. That wasn't a part of Toppin's lyrics. Oh, really? No, that little flair is an Elton edition. And he said he wanted it to kind of give the song more of a sci-fi feel, like a mid-70s, like techno, outer space kind of vibe, which is what the electric boots and the mohair suits, like it's all supposed to call to mind this futuristic out of this world kind of image yeah that's nice up next of course is the title track title track goodbye yellow brick road it's the fourth of 17 tracks boo, boo, and boo, boo, boo. 
It was huge. Big, big hit for Elton. It topped the charts in Canada, peaked at number two in the United States. The whole song is about giving up the penthouse and going back to the plow, kind of returning to a more simple lifestyle after all the glittery glamour of fame wears off. Which is a theme, I mean, we've already talked about it on Candle in the Wind, but we'll see it throughout this album. This theme of wanting to leave the fame behind and step out of the spotlight for a bit. To be singing the please. Settle down. Ah! Hey, people are going to listen to this. Yeah, you're going to cut all that, right? <laughs> please? Please? <laughs> Oh, uh, you were talking about how great it was. I sure am. But apparently, Benny and the Jets has more Spotify plays, so... Okay, well, I believe that. Benny and the Jets has the most Spotify plays. I mean, you realize that this album was out for decades before, I mean, the internet existed. Yeah, but that doesn't impact now. You always bring up that argument, I care about the now, the present. I ain't looking at the past. You've talked about getting a time machine three times in this episode already. <laughs> That's beside the point. What's that have to do with this? Just thought it might be relevant. <laughs> One thing I love is the way that they use this yellow brick road metaphor. Like, in The Wizard of Oz, the yellow brick road, sure, like, it leads the gang to the Emerald City. But, more importantly, it's the path Dorothy has to follow to get home. It's their path of discovery. She had the ability to go home the whole time without the path. The path was the path of discovery that led her to realize she had the power within herself and didn't have to rely on anyone else. No, She don't need no man or floating head. Right. I guess, yeah, I mean, and in that sense, too, the song is about discovery. Discovering that you don't like the lifestyle you thought you wanted. He's been following this yellow brick road, thinking it's the, what the path that he needed to get where he wanted to be. And now he's realizing he has the power within himself to be happy. So he's saying goodbye, yellow brick road. I'm just going back to the farm. Do you know what just totally, you just ruined this. We just talked about how the album cover was so nice and he's walking into the sunset on the yellow brick road. He's yeah. literally going <laughs> to the yellow brick road he's stepping into it yeah that's totally the opposite of what the song is about <laughs> i had the same thought during the concert when his very last thing you see right he's playing the song and like this escalator contraption takes him up and off the stage out of sight and then he comes up on the camera and goes walking onto the yellow brick road out into the sunset and i was like well that's kind of you should have been walking off the yellow brick road but okay yeah, we didn't even think about it wow <laughs> I did. I just didn't say anything. Still a t touching moment. How about that? Who knew? Oh, well. Great song, though. And if you <laughs> haven't heard it, I mean, it's musically so good. Those little... It's so good. OOO sections. I mean, you'd think they'd kind of get old or annoying, but it's just the way he sings them. You can kind of hear that anguish mm -hmm. in his voice, and that makes it all the better. Plus, how many other songs talk about a horny back toad? <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure there's at least one. Oh, that's it. That's his spin it award. The horny back toad award. Oh, uh, there you go. Now he's just an E away from a C got. There it is. Also, also, the alternate title for the album gets its moment in the song as well. I'll take a couple of vodka and tonics. That's true. Yeah, it is. Seems like the album title was almost destined to come from this track. Yeah. Well, for time's sake, we should probably keep it moving. Yeah, probably. Even though I just love Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and I could talk about it for a long time. Did we mention that certain tracks were going to probably not be in the normal cut? Well, if they don't know that by now, but that's true. I mean, there's just no way we could get all 17 onto even a quick normal cut. <laughs> I mean, even if we did nothing but talk about the 17 tracks, it'd be butting up on the normal time of the episode. Yeah, and we want something that you <laughs> is short enough for you to want to listen to. So 
don't be surprised if tracks like this one, this song has no title, end up being B-side exclusives. Up next is track six, Gray Seal. Is Gray Seal one that you knew? Yeah. I was hoping you did. Um, Gray Seal is, it was such a surprise to me. When I put on this album for the first time, obviously, through this point in the album, I had known most of the songs. I knew Candle in the Wind and Benny and the Jets and Yellow Brick Road, whatever. Gray Seal was awesome. I couldn't believe this is a song I hadn't heard. So you did not know this one? I didn't. The, not the first time I listened to the album. It's gone down as one of my favorites. But yeah, total surprise to me. It's a good one. Gray Seal was a track that was initially intended for Elton's self-titled album, way back in 1970 and it got cut from that record but they decided to revive it for yellow brick road a couple years later gray seals are actually native to the british isles fun little trivia fact they were already endangered by the time this song came out i wish i could tell you that i knew what this song was about frankly uh but i'm not sure i just i just love it yeah listen to the words listen, like tell me gray seal how does it feel to be so wise and see through eyes that only see what's real like okay is it that our eyes see things that aren't real or are we experiencing things in a much more complex way than a simplistic gray seal can like i'm not really sure exactly the angle we're trying to get at but i'm not alone in misunderstanding this uh bernie Taupin even says he's not quite sure what these lyrics mean he just says they somehow work fair enough that's what happens when you write them all in like three weeks you're right yeah he's just in a hurry some of them don't really make sense (laughs) i just love the way he launches into that chorus it's honestly one of the best choruses on the album and that is not something you can pick out lightly up next is track seven jamaica jerk off and this song always makes me want jerk chicken jerk chicken Yeah, this song is the biggest hint that the album was almost recorded in Jamaica. It makes a lot of sense that this song exists when you know that the album was written and almost recorded down there. Yeah. It's uh, it's a song about kicking around in Jamaica, you know, dancing away, fooling around. It's a good old time. It's a weird song, I'll be honest. It's the first song that kind of is a little bit of off the beaten path on this album. It feels like a deviation from the standard couple songs we've had so far. And if this album wasn't 17 tracks, it kind of would feel a little more out of place. Like if this song was just 10 tracks and this was one of the 10, it would be a little weird. But since there's so much more on this album to kind of normalize that imbalance, I think it's kind of a good fit. Fits well enough. Oh, I also wanted to point out in the end of verse one, he talks about boogalooing with my friends. Everybody always talks about, you know, whatever to electric boogaloo, like that's kind of become a meme, but nobody really talks about what boogaloo is. It's a dance. It's a dance style that blends soul music and Latin dancing. It's a lot of swaying and rhythmic movements and yeah. other things like that. So that's what the, the word actually means. And so then when you electrify it. And it's a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the conclusion I draw. <laughs> yeah. So Make a Jerk Off is a pretty short song lyrically, I think. It just kind of invests most of its energy into that really boppy, syncopated chorus. And that's fun. And it's a fun little track. I don't think it takes itself seriously, and I don't think we should take it too seriously either. It's happy-go-lucky. It is. Hey, have you seen that movie? Oh, yeah, I've seen that movie, too. You took it from me. Come on, we're back to this. How's it feel to have something taken right from your fingertips? You put in all the effort, all the work, and then they just have it snatched away. I'll have to ask the Gray Seal how it feels. He'll tell me. The premise of I've Seen That Movie 2 follows a duo that's fallen on hardship. And basically... 
He's just saying, look, we both know what's really going on here. Let's stop acting. Let's not beat around the bush. We've kind of seen how relationships fall apart, and we know deep down how this is really going to go. It's this relationship dynamic as it's falling apart, and they're kind of just dropping the facade. They kind of, they force smiles with the knives in their eyes. It's all very deceptive and insincere. So, you know, if you're going to pull that, you might as well take your auditions to somebody who doesn't have so much to lose. It's a really bitter song. Yeah, it's a fun little, or I should say it's a sad little ballad. It is, yeah. The drums do uh, some good work in this. Oh, yeah. I think this is probably, to this point, the best the drums have been, honestly. Or at least the most notable they've been. Every other track there, but kind of just there. This one, they actually do a little leg work, and I like it. Yeah. It was leg day on the album for the drums. Get them on the drum treadmill. (laughs) $6.99. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Actually, here's a fun little trivia tidbit about I've seen that movie, too. The art on the liner notes for this track actually helped inspire the creation of Mystery Science Theater 3000. The album art features the silhouette of a couple watching a movie. They're watching a scene from Gone with the Wind. And a very similar silhouette in a theater style would become Mystery Science Theater's 3000 kind of trademark. That's what they did, was they silhouetted them in the theater like that. So this song helped inspire that more than a decade later. I see. Up next, track 10, The Ballad of Danny Bailey, 1909 to 1934. Well, we just passed the halfway mark. Sure did. What did you think about The Ballad of Danny Bailey? So the instrumentals at the beginning, I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the verse started, and I was like, interesting. And then we got to the chorus, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> A lot of back and <laughs> forth. I think one of the best moments on this whole album is where they use that snare drum like a gunshot right in the very beginning of the first verse. Yes, that's really good. It kind of surprises you, startles you a little bit. I love it. Bernie Toppins confirmed that Danny Bailey is not a real person, uh, not historical. He called him a composite gangster. Sorry to all the Danny Baileys out there. You're not real. Well, this particular one isn't. He said he was kind of supposed to be like a John Dillinger or a pretty boy Floyd, you know, just some random criminal of the old West. So the song walks us through the life of this fictitious villain, you know, a real dastard in his own right. And we start with this unceremonious death, kind of at the business end of a shotgun, and we fill in the gaps from there. There's a cool line in the chorus that really intrigued me. The line says, it's all over and the harvest is in. Apparently, the harvest Mm -hmm. is a reference to this period in the mid-1930s where police brought down and killed a lot of notorious gangsters, including Bonnie and Clyde, Babyface Nelson, John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and more. I mean, there was this massive takedown, and that was the harvest. Wow. Yeah, a little bit of historical context for this fictional character. Weird phrasing. Mm-hmm. We're going to eat the mobsters. Oh, okay. That's what you're going for. The next song on the album is, I mean, buckle up. It's another wild one incoming. <laughs> Dirty Little Girl. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the song is literally this time. I mean, we don't have to tiptoe around it like vampires. This song is literally about a dirty girl, like physically covered in dirt. Like, I bet she hasn't had a bath in a year. Right, yeah, we don't get a sense of that until (laughs) that line. Up until then, we kind of assume... It does have one of my favorite lines on the album, though. (laughs) Yeah. Just the line, you have to clean the oyster to find the pearl in the context of this song. I was like... What the heck? Yeah, I know. I like that line too. Like the implication is like maybe you'd be nice and pretty, but you've just got too much yuck going on. <laughs> we gotta clean you up first. Yeah. 
You're just too gross, and we need to clean you up to find the pearl. Like, good grief. Get all the mucusy sludge off, slime off of yeah, you. Yeah, and I mean, this song is a, I mean, seems like a bit of an overreaction, unless this girl is really dirty, because the speaker threatens to shoot her if she gets too close to him. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot. But the music just goes so hard. It really does. It doesn't have any right to be that good. <laughs> it just, the way that it lands on those downbeats is always so satisfying. Mm-hmm. He calls the police. I don't know. I just, man, it's intense. But I like it. Dirty Little Girl is such a fun song. It is. Up next, the dozenth track on this album, and one that I'm kind of sad we didn't get to see him play. I looked at the set list from some other concerts after ours, and I realized that he sometimes plays All the Girls Love Alice, but he didn't for us, and that's sad. Huh. This is another, I mean, we're on a string here of songs that make you go, whoa, kinda. All the Girls Love Alice, it's about a straight girl who has to, uh, quote-unquote, get her kicks and make money with some of the town's older women, if you know what I'm saying. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting direction. With the vampires. With the, yeah, she's, sure. This is actually the first time that Elton John would work with Kiki D, whom you would recognize, perhaps, from her career as a solo R&B singer, but also as a frequent collaborator with Elton John, including as his duet partner on that classic, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. That was one that I was surprised wasn't played. I know. I thought that would be one we'd see. It's like the second or third best song in the Chicken Little movie. (laughs) The guitar sounds on this track are just incredible. I mean, this is maybe the first song on this album that, like, rocks. It's not the only one, but it goes hard, too. And this song has some awesome lyricism buried in there. He says she's got a double-barreled name in the back of her brain, like a double-barreled shotgun, right? That's kind of what it's supposed to call the mind. But also... A double-barreled name is the term for a hyphenated last name. In antiquity, that's what it was. In this case, it's kind of meant to imply that her family is wealthy and has status that they didn't want to give up by taking one parent's name over the other. So when they blended the families, they double-barrel hyphenated the name. Ah. It gives us a lot of context into what this girl's life is like without saying anything. Yeah. And, I mean, we get other great lines. A darling with a chip out of her heart instead of a chip off the shoulder or something. Like acting in a movie when you've got the wrong part. Just, I mean, it's so well crafted. And uh, this lifestyle, this reckless, kind of wild, off-the-cuff lifestyle catches up with Alice fast. And she ends up dead because of it. Dead in the subway. Those bizarre ambulance-like sounds at the end of the song were made by one of the producers who was driving down the road while he had his brother hanging out of the back window of the car with a microphone oh (laughs) then they sped up the tape it's really interesting interesting yeah i i can't imagine conceptualizing how that would sound and like just giving that a go you know you mentioned that elton john loves a good celebrity feud (laughs) yeah well that kind of made me think of this song a little bit uh up next track number 14 on the album is saturday night's all right for fighting saturday saturday yeah it's another song that rocks really hard (laughs) This is Bernie Taupin tearing it up in his rebellious teenage years. This is a story about that kind of experience that he lived then. You know, he's going out drinking, partying hard, getting into bar fights on a Saturday night. Just really, like, immersed in that nightlife culture. It peaked at number 7 in the UK, made it up to number 12 in the United States. And actually, uh, Elton has talked about recording this song. He said, I vividly remember recording Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. I couldn't seem to get the piano part right, so when the band played 
bass, drums, and guitar, I laid on the floor and did the vocal live. And then I put my piano part in afterwards. He said it's an odd way of doing it, but I remember doing that because it felt for some reason the four of us, me playing it live, just didn't work. So he overdubbed his piano afterwards. Really unusual and interesting, honestly. Someone who's such a good pianist, like, I don't know, can't even hit the piano part right live. Or he couldn't at that time. Obviously, he's since perfected it. This is one of the first Elton John songs I knew, I think. Really? It's probably up there. One I did not know, but came to really like. Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers is riding tonight. Absolutely. That's a good song. I mean, we've had some TV bad songs, right? Electric Circus for Bad Sons and, you know, Look Up from the band Camino. Yep. Uh, This song is kind of like a TV good song. It's all about escapism and finding solace in the comfort of a familiar TV hero, just like the titular Roy Rogers. Rogers, of course, was the singing cowboy and the co-founder of the Sons of the Pioneers singing group. He was in more than a hundred westerns and radio shows from the 1930s all the way up through the mid 80s he was i mean hugely influential in the genre and in the culture and this song is a nice little tribute to him yep again the music just goes hard it sure does it's it's such a like westerny sounding song that's one thing i was surprised about by elton john's entire discography especially in some of his earlier albums he really leans heavy on like the country western ballad as a british pop rock piano guy i really couldn't say i expected him to be so country but he really (laughs) pulls out all the stops I mean, he's got a whole album called Honky Chateau. I mean, just a lot of Western influence on his music in general. And Roy Rogers is no exception. Bernie Taupin says a lot of his lyrics were inspired by movies and TV he saw. He actually calls Yellow Brick Road a very cinematic album. As I mean, we've got songs about I've seen that movie too and Roy Rogers in this ballad of Danny Bailey. There are a lot of songs that really lean heavy into the narrative story and kind of expressing that through cinematic means. I mean, shoot, the whole album is named after The Wizard of Oz, so cinema Mm -hmm. is in his DNA. Bernie Taupin says he doesn't mind getting out there and doing what everybody else was doing, but he says he always had to have an escape hatch. And so, you know, Roy Rogers and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, getting back to the plow, like that's kind of his escape hatch, that that vision of leaving the spotlight. That's always on the back of his mind. I like it. The last pair of songs on the album are two that I didn't know before listening to the album, but they are, I mean, it's a really strong back-to-back right here. We start off with Social Disease, track 16. It's a little bit of an old double entendre, right? Uh, A social disease, as it's called, once again, kind of in the days of old and not really in rotation anymore. Uh, That used to be a thinly veiled kind of polite way to talk about an STD, right? You're out being uh, social, so to speak. You catch a disease. You've got a social disease. So it's got that implication. But we also have, especially specifically in this song, we've got this bum, this alcoholic, this leech, someone who's existing in society and a figurative disease on society, so to speak. And this song plays heavily with that dichotomy, that like double meaning. This song's really gritty, just in the way it's presented musically. This is like one of the only songs on the album that plays with dynamics. Yeah, it starts quiet, really quiet. And Christian knows its way up. Yeah, it always kind of annoys me sometimes. Oh. Well, okay, when I listen to the album start to finish, it's fine. When I'm cruising down the highway and this song comes on shuffle, I'm like, darn it. And you're like, oh man, I can't even hear it. <laughs> I want to listen to this, but I got to wait for a minute and a half till it gets 
is loud enough or I've got to turn the radio way, way, way up. That's that's my only frustration. Otherwise, yeah, I think it is really clever to do it like that. Because, I mean, imagine you're sitting around your record player, you're close to the end of the record, and all of a sudden there's, like, silence, you know? And it's spinning and it's spinning and the needle's, you know, getting in the groove, moving closer. And then, like, that build-up feels really nice. Or at least I imagine it would on a physical medium like that. I like the idea. A lot of good guitar work in this song, too. Oh, and the album closes out. Track 17, the final track, is Harmony. And honestly, it is one of the most musically complex songs on this whole record, I think. Yeah, why don't you brag about it? Why don't you marry Harmony if you like it so much? Well, gee, I really love her, and I want to love her forever. I do dream of never leaving Harmony. <sighs> You're going to tee me up like that and then be upset when I hit it out of the park? Yes. Okay. But really, though, it's got a lot of fun flat chords, a lot of minor chords with a flat sixth dominant and minor sevenths is kind of all over the place and it really is like a musical power move to end the album with this track he's talking to a girl named harmony reminiscing on their time together and uh he's kind of musing on the ironies in having a bit of a relationship that is fraught with disharmony in fact i kind of like that that's that's a clever little twist on things not being harmonious in your relationship with harmony the way they hit no at the end of the first verse i love it yeah it's big it's on it's big in a way that's reminiscent of goodbye yellow brick road i think yeah but not so high pitched yes it kind of ties that part of the album to the end of the album really well and i think it's a good curtain call for this album a fitting conclusion to 17 very involved tracks and with that i guess it's time for final spin yet again Let's spin it. Yeah. You can just, I'm just going to let you say it as many times as you want. I just figure if I say it as much as I can, one of them will be right. That is a good point. I think a broken clock is still right twice a day. And by that logic, since I'm not a broken clock, I'm right all the time. That's just a clock that's working. I, <laughs> I don't think that's by the logic at all. Ooh, my scores for this album are pretty good, I I think. First of all, let's talk music. Elton John is a great musician. He's got such a good grasp on music theory and ways to make Bernie Taupin's lyrics really pop in exactly the way they're intended to. These songs are fun, they're upbeat, but they can get sad when they need to. The album flows really well, and a lot of that is due to the musicality of it. These songs are put together really well. The melodies are well-crafted and well-sung. I'm giving music a 94. Lyrically, I love how cohesive the lyrics on this album are. The cinematicness of it is awesome, really uh, notable and unique for this album. And this idea of celebrity, of the stresses of being in the spotlight, the pressures you're facing under everyday walks of life, the need to get out of the flow of every day and break the mold, get off the yellow brick road. It's pervasive on every track on this album, mostly. And I mean, come on, we got some all-time classics here. Candle in the Wind, Benny and the Jets. I mean, we've got so many good songs. Given lyrics in 88. Instruments of production, top-notch. The instrumentation's so fun. These piano parts are plucky. They're fast. They're slow. Like, it's just, what's there to say? Good stuff. Instruments of production getting 93. Especially, I mean, remember we talked about those really neat drum parts that are in there. Uh, a lot of interesting instruments like the Mellotron. There's a lot you can dig into if you're looking. And the overall vibe, it's a long album. 17 tracks is a lot of tracks. But for the most part, I really don't think any of them feel wasted. There's not a lot of fluff or filler on this album, which is, I think, why a lot of people consider it Elton John's best work as a collection of songs. I kind of tend to agree. I haven't listened to all of Elton's stuff yet, 
but I've made it at least through the 80s on most everything, and so far this is far and away the standout record for me. Giving it a 93 for overall vibe, which puts its overall score at a 92.9, landing it at number 32 on the spreadsheet. Well, top 50. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like this album a lot. It's an easy album to love, I think. Even if you don't necessarily do music, this is an album you could probably appreciate, just at least for its historical significance, if not for all the work that went into it. All the three weeks of work. <laughs> what about you? I, too. Big fan of Elton John. Big fan of everything about him. This album, I mean, hard not to love. There's the. It's interesting because... As you talked out talked about, there's some heavyweight champion songs on this album. <laughs> yeah, big time. But like not a single song we talked about where we were like, yeah, this song's kinda skippable, except there was one you said was kinda I, forgettable. But I kinda disagreed. I did say that about Jamaica jerk off. <laughs> I kind of disagreed. To me, there wasn't really a skippable song. I think this is the most well put together album in terms of like hit songs that just aren't skippable since we did uh, Michael Jackson probably was the last one. Yeah, and he built that album to be like a bunch of singles. He really intended for every song to stand out. Again, there's tons of these songs that you don't, most people probably don't even know. But when you listen to them, they're not skippable. They're great. They're just not heavy hitters like Candle in the Wind or Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Mm-hmm. And so with that, my top three in album order, Candle in the Wind, yeah, Benny and the Jets, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Good. That was a necessary three song run. That might be one of the strongest three song runs on the podcast so far. Ever. Just for the record. And ever. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> um, with Conorable Mention going to Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting. I am so unsurprised by that. I mean, again, you got to go with the heavy hitters. I mean, yes, though, there's a reason all four of those were played at our concert. It's true. All the other songs loved them, but you got to go with the heavy hitters. What do you think in playlist pick? Wise? Don't make me do this. Oh, uh, can we just all right? Let's let I'm going to throw out two of them at you and you tell me if you can live with it. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road, Candle in the Wind. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road is a must. Yeah. Um, Candle in the Wind is tough. I, I mean, obviously nothing wrong with it. And it deserves a playlist spot, but Benny and the Jets is hard to pass up in this case. That was the other one I was going to suggest. And I honestly, in retrospect, kind of wish I had suggested that one instead because Candle in the Wind and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road are both more ballady, where Benny and the Jets is more poppy. A little bit. So. But, okay, but the sad part about that is those are the songs that everybody kind of already knows. I don't know. know. Part of me kind of wants to highlight some of the deeper parts of this album that people maybe haven't explored. Yeah, well, they can do that by listening to this album. Listen to Grey Seal. Before listening to the episode. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Or after listening to the episode. It's our favorite songs playlist, not our, these are songs you should go check out playlist. You're right. Okay, fine. We'll go consecutive again, huh? Three and four. Benny and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Let's do it. I can guess just about where this album is going to land for you. (laughs) The question is... How high? Yeah, the question is how high on the list because you set some of your high-scoring albums in place pretty early and nothing's been able really to top some of them. Your very highest score is still from our very first episode. Uh Uh-huh. And if there was ever an album that I thought could challenge the great Billy Joel, this might be it. Could be. But it's not. Oh, wow. Okay. Spill that bean right away. (laughs) This one is indeed getting a nine, and it's going to slot in right between Billy Joel and Phil Collins at number two. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So close. 
what stopped it from passing Billy Joel, if I might ask? I mean, this album is twice as long. Uh, yeah, I think Billy Joel does an equal amount. Again, uh, in terms of like powerhouses and stuff like that, in a shorter amount of attempts because there's less tracks, Billy Joel, I think, has an equal stopping power on his album, uh, The Stranger, as this one does. You might be right. Like these two were these two duking it out in the ring. Well, careful. Billy Joel's an undefeated boxer. Uh, yeah, I think neither would necessarily be able to dethrone the other in a track by track hit in terms of powerhouses. Oh, okay. It, it could go either way depending on your mood or the specific person, but everybody would be able to recognize that they're both big powerhouse songs. Uh-huh. So I think they kind of tie in that regard. And so I think the tiebreaker is that Billy Joel does that amount of power with less songs. That's fair. This is also, I mean, the highest nine you've given since episode 38. Since episode one. Well, since episode one. Oh, yeah. Well, it went episode one, 38, 45, 20, 30. When was the last time I gave? The last time you gave a nine was Coheed and Cambria, episode 59. I'm just looking at my top fives. So my top five last one was episode 40 mm-hmm. with Barry Manilow. So this is the first album in 30 episodes to crack your elite top five. Yeah. Pushing poor Miley Cyrus out of the top five. So she's the honorable mention now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we don't know your unit yet, though. What's more than nine Panics to Studios? But less than nine Cadillac. That is the question. Nine rabbit treadmills out of 10 yeah no surprise there (laughs) should have known that unit only makes sense if you listen to the (laughs) b-side yeah so yeah that's where we're at awesome this has been a good episode i'm glad we highly anticipated it i'm still mad about factor spin but i won't get over that for a while (laughs) if you're looking for first of all the b-side cut of this episode you can find it on www.spinitpod.com but if you're looking for us elsewhere on social media you can find us on twitter at spinitpod and on instagram at spinitpod official that's us the mixtaper would like me to remind you that he also now has a twitter at the underscore mixtaper oh i'd like to congratulate you on finally getting the mixtaper's twitter handle right the mixtaper is the one that always gets it wrong i get it right Uh uh-huh yes i also didn't definitely didn't look it up before saying that just to be sure just to be extra careful (laughs) well that's where we are that's what we're doing tune in next week for another exciting episode and until then you know what to do keep spinning keep spinning let's spin it (laughs) okay see this is absolutely (laughs) the wrong time you you really were way too late on that one Oh, man, don't make me hire some snipers. Uh, Is that that a threat? A promise.